Welcome back to Beyond the Bubble, a special second edition this week. Yesterday, we tried to give you an update on the state of the Democratic presidential primary, what is now effectively a two-person contest between Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders. Today, we're going to look back, though, on the candidates who left this race over the course of the last week. We felt like we needed a little extra time and space to properly assess what happened to their candidacies. And of course, the mark that they left on this primary and the Democratic Party at large. Uh, We are, just a quick note, swapping Emily Cadet for Adam Wallner, the McClatchy politics editor here in D.C. Adam, welcome back to the show. It's a downgrade, no doubt, but I will certainly try to to do my best. I'm glad you said it. I didn't want to say it, but the listeners know (laughs) it's a downgrade. I know my place. Someone who is certainly not a downgrade, Dave Katniss. Um, in no small part oh, wow. because he, he was here yesterday. <laughs> well, <laughs> so, we'll see about that. <laughs> it's been a long week, it's folks. I'm not long... sure the performance yeah. is going to be quite what you've uh, come to expect. <laughs> oh, Dave, well, Dave's got a, some coffee there. That's that's a, was he, a, was a espresso move. shot. He has he's, a double he's, espresso yeah. shot. That's how but, I roll on a Friday. <laughs> that's smart. That's We're smart. well beyond coffee here. Yeah. Okay. So it went from a field of seven candidates. We are now effectively down to two. Uh, and it's a list of departures that includes Tom Steyer, Pete Buttigieg, Amy Klobuchar, and Mike Bloomberg. But it was the last of those exits, Elizabeth Warren, that has drawn the most attention. And Dave, that's where we're going to start. And I'm going to ask you, why has there been such a, a reaction and a visceral reaction to her departure in this race? Well, she was the last female candidate standing and I know in the newsroom we were debating this yesterday about you know how successful she was historically. Um, she didn't get as many delegates as Shirley Chisholm, so we couldn't say that she was the second most successful mm-hmm. female after Hillary. Um, but the broader point being that you know there's a lot of disappointment right now if you're a liberal, if you're a liberal woman, um, and just watching cable news and watching you know columns and watching the reaction to Warren's departure, people are scratching their heads and wondering why a smart, well-prepared, great debater wasn't able to do better when it came to votes. And you know this is a complex question. It's a sensitive question. Obviously, sexism still plays a role in our politics. I think that has to be factored in. It's definitely kind of an all-consuming debate I, in DC yeah. for like the last 24 I, hours. But like, but it, there is more there. Yeah, there, to, there to there's more there. And you know, and just talking to a female legislator in Michigan today for a story that we wrote together about uh, previewing the Michigan primary that's now up on McClatchy, DC. Um, you know, it's about ideology as well. And you know, to put female voters in a box and say they're going to automatically gravitate to the female is just a mistake. And I think we have to underline that over and over. Um, African-American legislator outside of Detroit told me like she never thought Elizabeth Warren could win the state of Michigan. And that is the most important thing for her because she thinks Donald Trump is a threat to her constituents every single day. So she wants a Democratic nominee who can win. She did not think Elizabeth Warren could do that. Now, I don't think this African-American legislator is sexist or misogynist, um, but she factored that in. And to me, she said it was about ideology. That was the most important factor to her. She's supporting Joe Biden because of his experience, that he was uh, Barack Obama's vice president, which was important to her as a relationship to the black community. 
and that he could win the dang state. And I think for a lot of voters, that's the calculation that right. they, were, they, you they know, were making. Yeah, I think it just gets back to a point that we've made over and over again over the course of the past year is that everybody, whether you're an average rank and file voter or you're a member of Congress, you're almost viewing this entire race through the lens of a pundit rather than as a voter right. or as a Democratic leader, right? It's this all-consuming question of electability, and that means different things to different people. But it ultimately comes down to, OK, if my number one priority isn't a, a policy proposal and it isn't really about you know anything concrete like that. It's more this <laughs> idea of who do I think is the most electable who can beat Donald Trump. You just tend to view the race through the lens of a pundit. And I think that has definitely hurt uh, the, the, the female candidates in this race and the, the non-white candidates in this race because you know for you know people tend to view, white male candidates as as the safe candidates because more often than not that's that's who gets elected and that's, that's who wins that's elections. All had. That's all that they well, have experience with Obama, really except for yeah. Barack Obama being the exception. Right. And then you know even in terms of the Democratic primary contest in twenty sixteen I think affects these views for a lot of women voters in particular that they saw Hillary Clinton finally broke the glass ceiling in terms of winning the nomination but couldn't break that last one and win in the general election. So I think, you know, we've all been on the trail talking to a lot of female voters who you know, they liked the women who were running for president. Absolutely. They were huge fans of Elizabeth right. Warren, of Amy Klobuchar, of Kamala Harris. But then, you know, then you'd press them, well, are you going to vote for her? She's like, well, I don't know. You know, I don't know right. if, if she can win in a general election. Again, kind of viewing this race as as a pundit rather than trying to think what they themselves as a voter want to see in their nominee. So I think, you know, that that's really, uh, you know, ultimately was, was one of the, the major factors holding Elizabeth Warren back. Certainly she made some missteps as a candidate that can't be overlooked. Uh, you know, she was a, a front runner at one point in this race, dating back to, to just a few months ago and really started to lose her footing, you know, particularly over Medicare for all. I have a stat real quick. Yeah. That she actually in the real clear politics polling average, she passed up Biden in the national polls, that is, on one single day. Uh, she led the uh, national polling on October 8th. It was something by like two tenths of a day. percentage point. It was exactly one day, oh, actually. That is fascinating. But I she, thought it was longer than that. But. No, it, it, it felt longer than that hmm. because there was a month. And I think, again, this goes back to why there has been such a response to this race. She was the one candidate, I think even more so than Buttigieg, with all due respect to his candidacy, or even Mike Bloomberg. She was a candidate who a lot of reporters and, and pundits and Democrats over the fall thought really could win this race. Yeah. And it really, you start to get to the point where like, oh, she could be the nominee. Right. Well, and, and even at that point that you were talking about in the polling, it's not even so much that she was passing up Joe Biden. It's that she had seemed to supplant Bernie Sanders as sort of the, right. the, the progressive. Yes. Steadily the, over the, the summer. And I remember we in the newsroom, I mean, I'll, I'll take responsibility for this, but it's like, Oh wow! Like Bernie's not going to be in this for very long. Right? No, like, I, he is I on the, the downtrend, and, yeah. and then mm-hmm. and then here and then he has are. a heart attack. And, and, right? You know, and, and then that <laughs> and then that, that helped him. Like what? Like we know yeah. nothing anymore. Like he was able to come back on the climb. And I think we should emphasize the Bernie Sanders part to your original question about like why Warren didn't do as well. Mm-hmm. She said this in her press conference, yeah. right? She said, "I was told going into this, like there were two lanes." Biden had the moderates, Bernie had the liberals. I didn't believe that, but evidently I was wrong. She said something to that to that effect. Mm-hmm. And that sort of was a very clear yeah, cut I, statement to yeah, me. I like thought, she could never overcome the Bernie factor. Right. And, and not only, I mean, her and any of the other non-Biden or Sanders candidates right. in this race, ultimately, I thought she she hit the, the nail on the head there with, with that mm-hmm. answer that like, 
I mean, look back to where the polls were at the end of 2018 and the beginning of 2019. Biden and Sanders <laughs> were at the top of the field. And I think and the word that she used that I thought was was really apt was incumbent. She said that Joe yeah. Biden was the incumbent right. in the moderate lane. Bernie Sanders was the incumbent in the progressive lane. I never really thought about Hard it. Hard to in beat that an sense. incumbent. <laughs> right. Ex- exactly. It's like all the other candidates are almost challengers to them right. because they they come in with much higher name ID. They come in with an established base of support. So it's, it's incumbent upon the Elizabeth Warrens and the Kamala Harris's and Pete Buttigieg's of the world to supplant them, actually. It's yep. like they, they are the default. And we saw over the course of 2019, Warren did seem to beat out Sanders for a time in that liberal lane. Pete Buttigieg did seem to beat out Joe Biden for a time in that moderate lane. But when it came down to it, that sort of built-in advantage that Joe Biden Democratic and Democratic voters Sanders wanted to had, date. They wanted to date. They just didn't. In the end, a lot of dating. That, that, that ultimately, right. that ultimately, stable. that ultimately won out over everything. And of course, it is two old white guys, and that's again where we start to talk about, you know, maybe yeah. some of the sexism and, and the racism that's still at play in Democratic politics and just in politics in general. But those two came in with more name ID and just a, a clearer base of support that the other candidates just weren't able to overcome. I mean, to me, the analysis is you you can reduce it to a pretty simple level, To in, in my view anyway. She needed to be the leftmost candidate in this race. I mean, you're talking about someone who, if president, she got was, was several notches to the left of Barack Obama, right? I mean, she would have been the most radically liberal president we have had, arguably, since LBJ or even But FDR. probably tougher for a woman to do that. Well, that's... Right? I, w- I right. will acknowledge that. I mean, I think that, like, to be the left of Bernie... Mm-hmm. And then the first female to win the presidency, whew, that makes it even tougher. Right. And, and I think that that certainly fueled a lot of the electability concerns. One thing I would have been fascinating to see if you could design a simulation, you know, recreate what we had last fall. Let's say that she had been the leftmost candidate. I don't think she would have had quite the robust base that Bernie Sanders has. Right. I just think there is something about Bernie, and again, maybe this is rooted in, in part in sexism, but there is something about him that I don't know that she could necessarily replicate. However, if she had a progressive base that she could count on, the thing I think that she would have an advantage on Bernie Sanders was that it's just more natural for her to come back to the middle and to build a coalition. I'm not saying that she would skew to the middle on her policies, but she is more of a coalition builder, a little bit more establishment friendly. And that, yeah. that would have come and, a lot more naturally to her. was better at explaining policy. She was right. better at explaining policy than, than Bernie mm-hmm. and, and could lay it out. But you also think that like Bernie being first was a factor that I found with voters on the trail. It was like, well, why not Warren? I'd go to these Bernie events. Bernie was first. We can trust him. He's the original. He did it when it was unpopular. No one thought he had a chance in 2016. And Bernie's been the same since, you know, for decades. He's been campaigning on the, on this stuff. So we know he's not going to leave us. Warren, uh, and, and, a little and, less sure. And Sanders has that anti-establishment cred that right. Elizabeth Warren doesn't really have, right? right? I mean, she has been one of the more progressive voices in the party. She's been a team player. and we He saw was that. willing to challenge right. Hillary. No one else right. was. Right. He stepped up and challenged the, the, Hillary. The thing is, if Elizabeth Warren had challenged Hillary, she probably would have won. I think in retrospect, in, <laughs> well, in 2016, that's, that's, yeah, that's another, what if? I yeah. mean, well, I think one rule that you see over and over in politics is you really have a small window, yep. and hers might have been in, mm-hmm. in in 2016. Absolutely. I mean, the, the the you know she got squeezed on Medicare for all. She was you know Bernie was always going to be to her left after his heart attack. He didn't his candidacy didn't. The recede, it, it strengthened after that. That came about the same time that Pete Buttigieg started to really criticize her more from the middle about her policy plans for Medicare for All, how she was going to pay for it. And all of a sudden, you know, again, you know, she got squeezed from both sides. She didn't really have enough voters left in between who really in between the two. And and I will say, and, and some criticism of her campaign, I think it's fair to say, I don't know that they knew what to do. 
after that. We got this message of unity. She started yeah. to, to more directly address concerns that a woman could win the presidency. Now, lately, mixed the, messages. There were, I mean, right. it just it, it felt like they were flailing to find a message because they really didn't and, have a place. And I think, ironically, she did sort of start to find her voice a little bit yes, in those agreed. last couple of debates. Yeah. And she just let it rip. I'm not a politician. I'm a fighter. I thought it was a great place for them to land, but it took several I mean, months right. for and them to find that. Bloomberg place. finally being on the debate stage really helped her, right? Yes. He, she just eviscerated him. And, uh, you know, in that uh, final debate before South Carolina, she really, I think, leveled some of her most effective attacks against Bernie Sanders, saying, like, listen, love Bernie Sanders and his, you know, ideas. He's great. But if we actually want to get this stuff done, we need a, a more I reasonable, think, progressive voice. she could have been stronger on that. I still think, you know, maybe we look at this six months from now. I think one of the regrets, possibly the Warren campaign, is not going stronger at Sanders earlier. Well, not, yeah, exactly. Not on whether, like, he said privately in a conversation. I think that was a misstep, frankly. I think on the policy and whether he could get it done – that was a smarter argument to go at. But they had to go at it earlier because by that time she was losing states. She was down the polls and it looked desperate. And then voters know that. Voters cue on that. They're like, well, she, yeah. she's doing this because like Bernie's beating her. We know why she's doing it now. I think to make that argument earlier in a more sustained way might be a regret of the Warren campaign. I would agree with that. So do we think she's going to endorse? And who do we think she's going to Ooh. endorse? It's been a big subject of speculation. Um, I mean, she has has a lot of leverage right now, um, knowing that her endorsement could really swing her slice of support, which, you know, even though she never finished higher than than third place in any of these primaries, no, she still had a a base of support. And as we wrote about yesterday, you know, particularly among those, you know, kind of white college educated women who would, according to polls, kind of split actually relatively evenly between Biden and Sanders. So, you know, I, I would not be surprised if, you know, she does end up endorsing. I don't know who it would be, but I think she's going to be smart about leveraging this and seeing what she can kind of get out of both these candidates, whether it's, you know, if she's interested in something as high as a VP slot or if it's just trying to get them to adopt some of her, her policy I'm, proposals. But but she has all of the leverage right I'm now. I'm torn over this. I really think it's a tough call. And as we wrote yesterday, I think, like, this is going to be explosive either way. Absolutely. What, whatever she does, even if she stays out of it, mm-hmm. she's going to get hit. Watching her on Rachel Maddow last night, she was mm-hmm. asked um, about Biden. She could have hit him about the policy disagreements. She's like, of course we have disagreements, but I think he's a decent man. I think we're, our aims are the same. We just have a different vision about how to get there. And then Maddow asked her about sort of the you know the Bernie Bros and 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 the online vitriol. And she talked more extensively about how that was a problem and how she had a conversations with Bernie Sanders about it, and that it was a short conversation. Anyway, the takeaway from that hmm. interview to me was that it was she was a little warmer to Biden than Bernie, and that was. A bit of a tea leaf. I'm that's not, you know, I'm not going to say like that's the way she'll go, but it was a little bit of a tea leaf to read. Well, hanging over all of that is, look, I mean, in, in all likelihood, the way the race stands right now, if she endorses Bernie, she endorses the losing candidate right. in this primary, and she loses leverage, as to your point, Adam, that future. she would have over Joe Biden. I mean, this is a, a moment to extract some concessions, whether they're public or not, with Joe Biden if she were to endorse him. Now, it means a whole lot for her legacy, Dave. When we wrote about this yesterday, you quoted someone who really said that this is a, a big legacy moment for her if right. she's going to endorse because the progressive. There's a lot on the line for her personally, but... There is like a, a real argument, and the way I see it anyway, a real chance that she does endorse Joe Biden. The left will say she's a fraud. The left will say – I mean if she goes in for Biden, the risk is 
she's probably not running for president again. But, you know, I'm, I'm again, I'm not going to ever say never anymore because, <laughs> you know, who thought Joe Biden would be where he is after he passed on 2016 and we all thought Hillary Clinton was going to be president. She'd like, still be weird things can happen. Right, exactly. Years. So but I, I don't know if she's thinking about that, but man, the Bernie wing, and that may only be what, 35% of the party, however you want to, you know, 40% of the party at the most. They're going to come after her hard because they're going to say it's going to get um, ugly. It's going to get bad, and, I, and it'll be interesting to see how how she reacts to that. I, I just think it's a real bind for her either way. That's why I think it's going to be fascinating to see like where she ends up and how she calculates the politics. Let's shift gears to the diametric opposite of Elizabeth Warren, Mike Bloomberg. <laughs> uh, Mike Bloomberg had, let's say, uh, a tough race. Uh, he spent about a half a billion dollars to earn. What I saw in the latest track, about 60 delegates. He, of course, did not win any states. Um, He bowed out of the race just a day after Super Tuesday. And I'm not even sure what to say about his game. It was one of the most (laughs) unique runs for the president that we have ever seen. He skipped, of course, just a quick recap, the first four nominating contests. He spent a half a billion dollars out of his own personal fortune, did not actually raise any money through donors. And for all of that, he got humiliated on the debate stage and, again, performed pretty poorly in most of the Super Tuesday states. Dave, what is the legacy here for Bloomberg? I think the fundamental legacy is that the candidate matters more than anything. And I think this applies to all campaigns going forward. It showed that you can't buy it. You know, he tried to come in late, not compete in the early states. And, you know, the new early state calendar next time is going to look totally different because of all the problems in Iowa. And, you know, he's making a bet that there's a weak front runner, which there was. He was right. Joe Biden was a weak front runner. Like, let's not forget that. He I mean, collapsed in Iowa, New Hampshire. I mean, after New meltdown. Hampshire. Meltdown. It was, a, it was a meltdown. And Mike Bloomberg, arguably, in some people's view, became the new front runner alongside Bernie Sanders. And it wasn't the worst mm-hmm. bet. This was a couple weeks ago. Just right. a couple weeks ago. It, and I'm looking at, we were looking at him going like, maybe this can work, right? Like, it mm-hmm. wasn't. At, so I, I don't think, I mean, when you're worth $60 billion, was it a waste? I don't even think so. Like, it was a nice shot. They had a creative social media team. He flooded the zone. He went to the later states that were bigger. It just didn't work. And I think part of it was he went on that debate stage. Warren eviscerated him. And he, like, wasn't that good. He was, he started standing there. He's getting pounded by Warren. He didn't know how to respond. And he wasn't a charismatic guy. He wasn't a charismatic candidate. A big brain, built a company, hats off to him. I think anybody who becomes a billionaire based on their own skill – I tip my hat to them. But as a candidate, like there wasn't just really anything compelling about him. I mean, and I, that matters to people. As it, as it turns out, Adam, I mean, one of the most important moments in this presidential primary was the DNC's decision to adjust mm-hmm. the debate rules that they said, of course, that they were always going to do. But there was a lot of controversy when the, there were right. qualifications changed and Bloomberg was able to qualify for the debate. But as it turns out. I mean, that was a hugely significant right. moment. And yeah, and in fairness to the DNC, I mean, what, what choice did they have at that point? Because, you know, cause that was at a point in the race where, you know, Biden was faltering and Bloomberg was really rising up in the polls. So it's like, I mean, you really would be doing a disservice to voters not to include one of the top polling candidates on the debate stage. I think and, that's an argument a lot of Democrats see much more clearly now than they did ahead yeah, of well, time. Well, sure. You're absolutely he right. He should have been like called in sick. Well, right. <laughs> well, like, well, I, well, I'd love to be there. Well, because, but, but it's interesting because, but, you know, even the lead up to that, while, of course, you know, when they did change the rules, there was a lot of, why, you know, why are you doing this for Michael Bloomberg when you wouldn't change the rules for someone like Cory Booker or Julian Castro? But a lot of progressives were actually saying, no, 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 we want we on they, the debate right. stage because we think that's a perfect foil for Bernie, Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren. And they were right. Yeah. And as you mentioned, I mean, that first debate, I mean, he was 
Marge is tearing into him, and I'm looking at him and going, like, he didn't even like, he, he, you didn't even inter- try to interject. No, he or didn't ask seem prepared. He didn't seem prepared. It's like, like she deer just, in the headlights. The stuff that she called um, you and accused you of, and you're just going to stand there and let the next question. Oh, well, now right. let's go to the next question. Because like, uh, up until that moment, you know, by skipping the first four states and looking ahead to Super Tuesday and March states where he was blanketing the airways with TV ads, he was campaigning the states. He was all on his own. He was running a parallel campaign while right. everybody was in Iowa, New Hampshire. Right. And so, of course, bubble. you know, it's kind of similar to how Tom Steyer was able to boost his numbers briefly in Nevada and South Carolina because he was really the only one who was campaigning there and the only one running ads there. When you're running basically unopposed, of course, your numbers are going to go up. I almost forgot about Steyer. Right? It's been only but, a couple and, of and, and he like, ultimately no, didn't do much of anything in Nevada or South Carolina. He dropped out as well. So... Once he actually had to get into the fray with everybody else, he realized, oh, yeah, this is like a, a pretty difficult endeavor. And it's an interesting thought experiment. If there was a slightly more charismatic candidate who had the same resources that Bloomberg did, would this have turned out differently? Or just the fact that you know yes. Joe Biden ended up just wiping out the field in South Carolina and rode this huge wave of momentum into Super Tuesday. It wouldn't have mattered anyway. You sound like you're describing Oprah Winfrey's candidacy. Someone, yeah. who, could, <laughs> someone who could have spent a half a yeah, billion right, dollars. Yeah, yeah but like, people love cash. her, and she's interesting, and she's she great on stage, and she knows how to do a speech. And like, yes, I think the charisma does matter. It'd be like, holy, look at what, this. What would have happened if Mike Bloomberg didn't participate in the debates? Let's say that that had been a conscious decision from the campaign, or let's say that the DNC qualification standards hadn't changed. Would Super Tuesday have looked different? Because I, I got to say, I'm like a little skeptical of that because the party did consolidate yes. so quickly around Joe Biden in South Bernie Carolina. Bernie gets more fire because Warren is then like doesn't have Bloomberg up there. Where does she go? I mean, I think more attention is focused on Bernie, who is at that point. You know, emerge the, as the, the, front the emerging as right. we were like, is he the front runner? He's an emerging front runner. He was at the top. He was winning states. And he didn't get much attention. He didn't get much attention. But I think you're right. Overall, does it change anything? Like Bernie lost all the Super Tuesday states anyway. Right. I mean, if he had won Super Tuesday, then that would have been a more important Well, and because I, I think, you know, ultimately what we were seeing in the polls as Biden was falling and Bloomberg was rising, it was a lot of those more moderate voters of, of all stripes who were just getting a little bit concerned that Biden didn't have what, what, what it took to make it yeah. all the way. But, you know, starting with Jim Clyburn's endorsement, winning in South Carolina, you know, I don't think it really would have mattered either way, Bloomberg on the debate stage or not, because I think a lot of those people were soft Biden supporters to begin with. And once they saw that he was kind of emerging as that moderate candidate and, you know, Bloomberg just hadn't even been a factor at that point. I, you know, I don't think things would have turned out all that differently for Biden and Bloomberg. I mean, one one thing to consider real quick, the Washington Post reported yesterday that Michael Bloomberg, as he has said this whole time, is prepared to spend heavily in the general election, uh, presumably at this point alongside a Joe Biden candidacy. I mean, right. we're looking at it almost a, a one of a kind situation where this multi-billionaire sets up his own organization and is going to spend I don't know, what is it going to be, a billion dollars in yeah. a general election? I mean, what what happens if Mike Bloomberg decides to spend $300 million in Texas? Well, how does the Trump campaign respond to that? Yeah. And, and what is the perception among voters that Joe Biden has this wealthy benefactor <laughs> out there helping his campaign? Bloomberg, look, it worked to great effect in the 2018 midterm elections, but we're talking about a level of attention and just spending that could grow exponentially yeah, in I, 2020. I guess, you know, talking about our thought experiment, maybe we will get to see that play out, Bloomberg's money behind a more charismatic <laughs> candidate in, in yeah. Joe Biden here, um, if he's going to spend big on him both in the primary and in the general election. But that money will completely reshape the race for Democrats because particularly the DNC has, has trailed so yeah. far behind Especially the, state the Republicans party level. at like, state party, national party level. Party, so yeah. if he can, you know, not only bring things to parity, but outspend 
Trump in a lot of these states. I mean, that's all of a sudden we're looking at a, a much different ballgame. It will be welcomed everywhere. I can't imagine Democrats. I mean, I, I mean, Bernie would be the one. I mean, who has already said, I don't want Bloomberg's money. But every, every yep. the Democrat, whether you're running for Senate, from state Senate right. to U.S. Senate like, please. to Congress, they're going to be like, send money to Texas, yeah. send money to Arizona, send money to Georgia. I think like Bloomberg will be loved for that everywhere. That, that's how he'll redeem himself from that from his failed campaign. I, 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 there's a little part of me that just wonders what Trump and the GOP does with the messaging there, though, um, and trying to connect Biden with Mike Bloomberg. And maybe mm-hmm. maybe it falls flat. I just yeah. think it's a very strange situation. I mean, what do you owe to this guy who's going to spend a billion He's your dollars? daddy. He's your sugar daddy. He's your sugar daddy. Oh, and, wow. and, I'm, and I'm wondering- Did we just write little... the ad? <laughs> <laughs> In case the Trump campaign is listening to the, the, the podcast. I, it's just, it's a dynamic I think is going to get a lot of attention um, as, as we move yeah, forward. One candidate not moving forward, Pete Buttigieg. Um, lest we forget, Pete Buttigieg won Iowa. He wow. probably would have won New Hampshire if Amy Klobuchar hadn't had a strong debate yeah. right beforehand. Yep. And he overperformed Elizabeth Warren everywhere, including in Nevada and South, South Carolina. Carolina. He was, of course, the first serious millennial candidate. He was the first openly gay candidate. Something of a historic candidacy in, in this race. Was he ever that close to winning the nomination, though? Um, I mean, not incredibly close. I mean, closer than most of the other candidates got. But I, mean, I think closer his, than Kirsten Gillibrand. Sure, sure. but, but I, you know, his <laughs> I think his success was all about demographics and geography. The first two states to vote were just you know sort of you know tailor made for him in a lot of way. Overwhelmingly white states. Um, you know, he never was able to cobble together any sort of support among non-white voters, even really among working class voters. And in, in a fractured field, you know, he was able to get his, what, 20, 25 percent in these states and walk away with first and second place finishes. But the second things moved to more diverse states, he completely faltered, even though he had momentum in a lot of ways coming out of these states. I think obviously the way that the Iowa results, you know, that debacle certainly hurt him. He wasn't able to maybe have that week of momentum the winner of the Iowa caucus would normally get. You know, and the same goes for Amy Klobuchar as well, who came out of New Hampshire with momentum. You know, the, as soon as we got to Nevada, where a lot of Latinos vote, as soon as we got to South Carolina, where a lot of black voters vote, he just wasn't able to expand his coalition at all. And that provided the avenue for Bernie Sanders. But, but, and Joe voters of color just weren't are. buying what he was selling. Now, I'm going to be a little contrarian. I think if Pete Buttigieg won Iowa by five points and then won New Hampshire by five points, he still gets killed in Nevada and South Carolina. I think he yeah. had an unsolvable oh. problem. I, don't, I think if it went perfect for him in the first two states... I mean, we wrote about it. Everyone wrote about it. The campaign never had an answer for it. The problem was he was new, young, looked young, and had like zero relationships in the African-American community and then gr- larger political community. And, 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 and had and, some stories emerge from his tenure as mayor yeah, of South Bend that did and then not new, help. Right, right. With a police chief, a firing of a police chief there, racial problems, not being able to hire African-American police officers on the force that he was in charge of. So, like, that was just an unsolvable problem. And if, you know, you flip the calendar and if South Carolina is the first state, Buttigieg is, like, never even in the, you know, he was like, like Iowa was a very great, right. perfect state for him. Midwestern state, a lot of white people, um, older vote, dedicated. And look, Buttigieg is obviously, like, very talented, a great debater. Like, I don't ever think I saw him get rattled. Maybe the one time is that press conference in South Bend 
when Black Lives Matter showed up and shouted questions at him. That was a tough day. Otherwise, like, never saw him get rattled. But he had an unsolvable problem. And I think the only way to do that is, like, more time in the African-American community talking about issues, listening. And I think he tried to do it at the end. But as I remember operatives telling me, like, he can't fix this in a month. He can sit in South Carolina for the rest of the month with Al Sharpton. Yeah. Like, black voters are the most skeptical voters, right? They've been promised things and politicians have not delivered. So they were not going to take a chance right. on I mean, a 38-year-old. And, and meanwhile, you're going up against Joe Biden, who has literally a, yeah, all the a, decade, a decades-long right. track record with these voters. I mean, he had problems within his own campaign. It feels like forever ago. Yeah. But the New York Times reported on uh, people of color on his campaign who yeah. felt shut out, who felt used, who felt like their voices weren't being heard in the larger firmament of the, the campaign. And that, that came out like in the weeks before Iowa. And it feels like a long time ago now, but it was clearly – um, a, a, a huge issue for him. And look, his political future, such as it is going forward, really depends on his ability to fix that and to build a relationship. And Dave, look, to your point, he is a talented politician. Absolutely. And I think that he probably does have the chops to do that, but he has to try to make a real effort. And he has to find the way to make an effort because it's not clear where. And it's got to be authentic and not look just overly Calculated, political. Yeah. Like sure. I'm running in 2028, 20, right. so I'm just going to like sit in South Carolina. I think he's, you know. He's got to do sort of behind the scenes stuff without media that isn't like, hey, I'm talking African-American voters. I think he's got to like go deep in the community, talk to a lot of people and listen a lot more. Right. Um, but, but does he do that? What does he do that as? Is he going to be a congressman? Is he going to be a governor? And that's, that's the tricky thing for him. Thousand, I mean, that, that was part of the reason I think he just decided to, to go for president was because, you know, he's he's the mayor of South Bend, Indiana, you know, in a very red state. He tried to go for DNC chair. That didn't work. But, you know, he, he doesn't run for president to become president, not at the start of this race. I mean, let's just well, let's say, I, well, I'm saying, you know, if, if he wanted to further his political brand after he had a failed DNC chair bid, it's like, what do you do? I mean, he's you know, there wasn't a, a clear opening for him to run for the House. He's not going to win yeah. statewide at he the might Senate be in the Biden administration level. if Biden wins. So I mean, he could be a staffer in the White House. No, and I think he, and it was endorsed I, Joe Biden. Yeah, I think that was smart of him to just say, you know, whatever, I'll just go, you know, run for president and see what happens. And I think he made it a lot farther and was more successful than anybody would have imagined when he first got in. I mean, I remember. Remember his opening press conference when in 2019 when he declared that he was going to run. He held. I mean, something. It was almost like a low key press conference, um, not yep. far from us here, actually in, in Washington D.C. Yeah, he took him. some questions from the press, and and people thought, ah, oh, well, he's you know an, an interesting figure in this race. I mean, he's a millennial. <laughs> you know, I actually wrote a story with him in New Hampshire right before his candidacy started to take off, where I was talking about his favorite movies growing up. Yeah, you, um, you outed him as a Dave Matthews band fan. He he comped to liking Dave Matthews. Really? Really? And fish. I didn't oh, even yeah. know that. Oh yeah, well, that no. makes sense. He was he was into Actually, the jam bands. I think he's still into the jam. He may bands. need to like broaden his musical taste. Also, that might help. The high hope that, song is a little much. You know, for me I saw that in the like, exit polls among music fans. He just wasn't doing. <laughs> I mean, not well. yeah. <laughs> one like of the, the main much. takeaways I had about his candidacy because again, it was this incredibly remarkable, unexpected amount of success that he had that I think has gotten a little bit lost with his campaign. I kept waiting for his campaign to to kind of peter out. He had a, a big moment after a CNN town hall in the spring of 2019 where all of a sudden he rose up in the polls and then he kind of seemed to stall over the summer. He wasn't really growing anywhere. And I thought, well, he had a nice moment. He improved his reputation and that'll be it. And instead, a couple months later, he started really taking on Elizabeth Warren over Medicare for All. And you saw a yet another bump in support for him, at least particularly in places like Iowa and New Hampshire. And look, that, of course, Adam, to your point, was a, a function of demographics as much as anything else. But it was really this incredible candidacy, this incredible run. And for a party that doesn't have a lot of bright young stars, 
who who have this kind of exposure and experience, he is certainly a, a figure to watch. Yeah. Not the last we'll be hearing from him. He's 38, after all. Quickly here, let's talk about the candidate who became something of Pete Buttigieg's arch nemesis uh, in this race, <laughs> at least on the debate stage. Ooh, I wonder who this is. <laughs> Tom Steyer. Uh, <laughs> so Amy Klobuchar, uh, of course, also dropped out of this race, also endorsed Joe Biden. And she was a, a candidate who I felt like we spent most of 2019, at least the fall, we kept waiting for her to start to surge in the polls, to start to pick up momentum that she seemed to have the right profile to make an impact in this race, particularly in a place like Iowa. And I think maybe emerge as the candidate with the best electability argument against Donald Trump. And maybe she had that, but it didn't seem to catch on, Dave, until the very end. You know, yeah. she she had a, a slight surge in Iowa where she was able to, I mean, look, she came in fifth. She was able to get about 12 percent of the vote. Yeah, and she then, made. I mean, if you told me that it wasn't going to be Kamala Harris and Beto, and I was going to be looking at Amy Klobuchar in the last five, I would have been like, yes. "Go jump at the Potomac." Yes, uh, yeah. but but like, look, the debates really mattered for her too, and we joke about this internally because we, we were always like, "Klobuchar wanted to debate, Klobuchar wanted to debate," and we put her, and then nothing moved, nothing moved. She's still five percent. She's still a five percent. She became something of a media and, fascination. Yeah, there's, she there's did. No, there's but no. But I would and I give think, her credit. Like she performed well in those debates. Yeah. I don't think it was like she had a grasp of the issues. She knew how to deliver an attack. She knew how to sort of perfectly encapsulate that modern Midwestern grit, which was a little bit mom hokey, but I think did resonate with some of those moderates that were also looking at Biden and go, he's looking like Sleepy Joe. Like, what's going on over there? She wasn't sleepy, right? Like, she was tough, gritty. I think she beat expectations. Oh, for sure. Right? For sure. I also think she's got the taste and I, she will run again. She got the taste of this and was like, I had a shot at this. This was a tough field. There's 25 people. I think we're going to see her run again in the future. She's relatively young. And the whole reason I could see her becoming the nominee is I really could see her seizing that mantle as the most electable candidate that she was. And that was almost the, right. her whole message, really, for a long time was I'm a practical Midwest senator. And I could just see people coming around to the view that she's more of a fresh face that she's from the Midwest, that she's pragmatic, that people could embrace that. You could kind of see it, it just when you sketch it out in your mind. It, it didn't get that close to it. Maybe the voters in New Hampshire started to see that by the end. But, of course, Klobuchar's problem was actually very much like Pete Buttigieg's problem, yeah. that she had a lot of support among sort of suburban moderate whites and really no support whatsoever among voters of color. Yeah, I was, I was going to say, I, I don't want to get too you know, far ahead here on, on Amy Klobuchar because, yeah, she also just was not able to win over any non-white support in, in Nevada and South Carolina. And really, I think, you know, she never finished better than what, third place, right, in any of these contests. So, you know, I think, you know, she suffered the same problem that a lot of the other moderates did is just that, you know, Joe Biden had that mantle and he had it all along. But I do think that she is going to play a pretty significant role for Biden now as a surrogate. She immediately got out of the race and endorsed Joe Biden. He's already using her on the campaign trail this weekend in Michigan. She thinks she has a shot at V, probably. Outside shot. But maybe, maybe if she yeah. kills it. But she yeah, trail. yeah, to your point, I mean, Alex, you know, she yes, certainly yeah. she certainly still has that appeal in the Midwest, which is obviously gonna be a very important battleground coming up in the primary and obviously in the general election. But in terms of her as a future, you know, if she does decide to run for president again, I mean, much like Pete Buttigieg, she's gonna have to confront some tough questions about how do I expand beyond just sort of my small totally. white base that I have. To me, you know, if her surge had happened, say 
when it did for Buttigieg, let's say in October and November, would she have had enough time? And and I know, like, look, coming to voters of color at the very end of the race with in the context of a campaign, it was always going to be a very high hurdle, a, a very steep challenge for her. I would just say that maybe she'd have had a better shot at it than a 38-year-old mayor of South Bend, Indiana, that she was a United States senator. She then, was a little bit more credible. I'm not, it was. It would have been a big challenge. Yeah. But that that is, to me, the what if about her campaign. You know, she took off in February. Like Buttigieg canceled her out a bit. Well, and, and right. I mean, like, they, they Buttigieg is in the race. Does Klobuchar emerge? Right. With a bigger coalition. Yeah. To your analogy, they dated Buttigieg first. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, in in, right. in the fall, and and would Klobuchar have had a better shot? Because look, I, I mean, I even saw her in Nevada right after she had had this kind of surprise third place finish in New Hampshire. And it it was clear that she didn't really have a relationship, you know, even organizationally with the state or had talked to a lot of the voters there. I mean, she even the state senator who introduced her at this Black History Month festival in Las Vegas said, you know, I met her a few days ago. You know, she literally said that as she was introducing (laughs) and she read her notes about all the highlights of Klobuchar's campaign. And it was indicative of a candidacy that that really had notes is always a tell too. (laughs) these guys with Biden. It's like, I remember Joe came at the fish fry 30 years ago. And Amy's like, well, Amy's from Minnesota. I mean, and and Biden actually came up, appeared at the same event after her. And the the difference in response to the, the two candidates was was very telling. And look, Klobuchar finished sixth in, in Nevada, and she finished sixth in South Carolina behind Tom Steyer. Her candidacy petered out very quickly. So for whatever mark she was able to leave, it just all came too late. You know, Would she have had a better chance of trying to, to talk to those voters, to build an organization, to try to break through with some voters of color? Maybe. I think, again, I think it's a, a really steep challenge for her. But I think she would have had a better shot at it than Pete Buttigieg potentially. Any other final thoughts, guys, about any of the candidates? Are we not going to talk about Tulsi Gabbard? Whew, She's really? still in the race. This is a, a conversation <laughs> about candidates who have left. So uh, the question is, Tom Steyer, do we have any lingering Steyer thoughts? I will uh, just say I thought he was a better candidate than people give him credit for, actually, for a billionaire. More charismatic than Bloomberg. Um, more personable, for sure. More personable. More like an average person. And, like, I think he was, like, genuinely in it for the right reasons. Like, you know, people knock billionaires all the time spending money. Like, I think the guy does care. He was a head of the curve on the impeachment of President Trump when no Democrat would want to talk about it. The Democrats obviously did end up impeaching but not convicting Trump. So, like, there are things that I think Steyer was ahead of and I think he should get his due for that. But obviously was never – a top-tier candidate to be the Democratic nominee. Had a brief moment in South Carolina where it yeah. looked like he was, you know, he... But then where would he have gone? Let's say he won South Carolina. Like, what happens then? You have I the billionaire-on-billionaire debate between Steyer and Bloomberg, <laughs> and they battle oh, it out right. after Biden drops out of the race. <laughs> they drop money in some, on In some fan fiction yeah. version well, of, yeah, of this and, race. Yeah, and, and to your point, you know, in fairness to Tom Steyer, you know, he really did a lot of outreach to, to black voters in South Carolina. Oh, was really ahead of the curve on that in a lot of ways and was focusing on that state when everybody else was in Iowa and New Hampshire. You know, to my point earlier, I think that that's part of the reason why he was rising in the polls because he just kind of had the state to himself. The money helps with all that. Money, oh, yeah, money oh, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Well, I mean, does the airwaves, that's what I'm saying. He has the airwaves and the campaign trail to himself. And he did end up finishing third in South Carolina. I mean, beat out, you know, a lot of more kind of established candidates there. 
But similar to Bloomberg, you know, his, his money is going to continue to play a, a major role in this 2020 race, and Democrats will welcome that. Yeah. We uh, still don't know who he voted for in the California primary or mm. endorsed, right? Like, he is not I endorsed. I don't think he's endorsed. Well, he, like, well, he probably did a mail-in ballot and voted for himself. Oh, that's true. He we need yeah. to get to the bottom of who Tom Steyer voted for. Tom Steyer, if you're listening, you're always welcome as a guest <laughs> yeah. on the show. We'll yeah, you can break the news on this podcast. On, on any number of subjects. Dave, Adam, thank you so much for coming on the show. Of course. Absolutely. Thanks to our producer, Jeremy Sheeler and our executive producer, Davin Coburn. We will be back to you next week with our regularly scheduled Thursday edition of Beyond the Bubble. Until then, have a good week.